0: Hi, my name's Sam, I'm from Princeton University Press, very pleased to be uh, co-sponsor these three lectures by Professor Sidney Brenner. Uh, Last night he began, tonight he'll talk about does E. coli understand itself, and then tomorrow finish us off, and anyone who was here last night knows that uh, these lectures are enormously stimulating, we can have plenty of discussion and questions after the lectures, and uh, without further ado, we'll introduce Professor Sidney Brenner to talk to us. Thank you very much for uh, uh, coming tonight. Uh, and the subject I have, the title is meant to be very serious, although you may think it not to be. Uh, since we would like to try to understand how a bacterium works, we can ask the question, does, does the bacterium understand itself how it works? Because then if we got an answer to that one, we would know what knowledge we have to have in order to put ourselves in the same position as a bacteria. Now let me just say what the problem is. You get the idea of scale. So here's an organism, uh, dimensions, about a, about a micron in length let us call it a cubic micron, uh, its volume is about a femtoliter, its, its mass is about a femtogram, a femtokilogram. So, a femtogram, this is very tiny, uh, we know that there are about 4,000 genes making 4,000 proteins, And basically for the purposes of what I'm gonna talk about, we can view E. coli as a kind of factory that makes chemicals out of other chemicals. Because E. coli can make itself out of essentially a carbon source, which is glucose usually, ammonia as a nitrogen source, a few uh, other simple things like sulfate and phosphate. And from this it can synthesize everything that it needs to make E. coli. Right? And we'd like to know, how is this controlled, how is it regulated? Right? So the first thing we could do is we could go to a control engineer. We'd say, look, we got this factory Uh, This factory has got 4,000 reactors in it. Uh, The reactors produce products. And at the end of the day, everything is run in, in a steady state, so it's all regulated. So please could you tell me how can I control this factory? Now, you will find that if you ask a control engineer, he would take the following view. Well, I would put uh, a probe into each of these reactors so that I can make some measurements of rates of reaction of temperature and so on. I would bring all this information to a central computer. Uh, The central computer would have an effector organ which would go back to all these things turn the valves, raise the temperature, change the pressure, and then I would have to perform some kind of optimization computation in order to deal with fluctuations and compensate for them in order that this could go on. And you will find that most control engineers would say, you never get this to work properly because it is too complex, and in fact, it turns out that there are no computers powerful enough to do this because most of their computation is concerned with their own administration. In other words, they have to have priority calculations to know what to deal with first. And in fact, the self-administration of such a system is a huge problem. And in all of these complex systems, they they are metastable in the sense that small fluctuations can either drive them to explode, to value one, or, or they die, to value zero. But, I mean, E. coli does it, and of course we left out for our control engineer the fact that the entire factory is copied and duplicated every 40 minutes. We thought his his brain wouldn't be able to cope with that problem as well. But it does it, and so therefore there has to be a solution to this. And the interesting question is to ask, given such systems, what sort of solutions are there? So you'd have to argue, as I did, That E. coli must have a way of computing the optimum and what does it have to do? And so we are immediately say, we are immediately confronted with a problem which is, if you like, the architecture of the computation that is performed. And how can we deal with it in these terms? Now, what E. coli does is the following, it saves itself, it divides itself into subsystems such that each subsystem is independently regulated. It also does the following, Instead of the multiple parameters that have to be measured, which you could think of as all the small molecule intermediates, each subsystem only makes one measurement. And the way it makes the measurement is not to have an elaborate diagram of pipework, as a chemical plant might have, but to use a broadcast system. Because at that scale of things, the fundamental event is a molecular collision, which is very fast. And the thing that makes everything different is the notion of an active site. So that one has an enzyme, one has a protein, which is tooled really to recognize one thing. So most of the time, a given signal, which is a substrate in this case, is colliding with the wrong molecule. Most of the time it collides with the right molecule. It's in the wrong place, and only a small fraction of these collisions result in a recognition. That is the character of context-sensitive broadcast systems. They're very cheap which is to put every molecule everywhere, and at that scale, that's what diffusion does. In fact, molecule in that range will transit across a bacterial cell on average in one millisecond. So, and then the collision frequency is so high we can afford to do it. So, the way E. coli implements this is first not to have physical addresses for the elements of the plant the plant is in fact has no physical addresses it only has if you like logical addresses in other words everything is thrown off and so carbon dioxide can be uh, colliding with the protein tryptophan, histidine any one of the 500 things, but only one of them is meaningful for that protein. You don't have to wire it up. Now, to understand the difference between this notion of a system, I thought I'd do the inverse for you, and I would show you how you would do numerical calculations using E. coli machinery. So this is a kind of inversion, but I hope I will communicate to you the essentials. So let's take a problem which uh, for which is quite easy to write a computer program. We have a million numbers and we want to add them up. We want to find the sum of these numbers. So what we do is we either create a stream of these numbers or we will put them in an array or a vector, and we'll take them off one by one, and we'll say add n to n plus 1 for n from 1 to whatever the number is. When you come to the end, you will have the sum. But let me tell you the way E. coli would do it. E. coli would invent an element called an addase. Okay, so an adase is an object like this, and all the numbers exist in solution. So we have a solution of numbers, there they are, all lying around. And what E. coli does. would do, the addase would take two of these numbers and bind them. So this is a bimolecular reaction in in chemical terms. And it would do the following. It would take the numbers, write the sum of the numbers on one of these. So if this came in as 1 and 3, then it would write 4 on here and 0 on this and throw these numbers back into solution. That's what the adase function could do, right? And we wouldn't have to place the numbers anywhere, and these adases, of which we might have uh, several dozen or several hundred all working independently, they don't even have to know of each other's existence. And so therefore, looking at this from above, we could begin to discuss the kinetics of this reaction. And what we know is it will get slower and slower for the simple reason about halfway down the reaction. You are spending quite a bit of time adding a number to zero, writing zero on one and the number on the other. And of course, right at the end, you are adding zero to zero. In fact, we can't even tell when this computation would finish because finding the last two might be very, very difficult because this depends on collisions and so the speed of the computation is proportional to the square of the solution of numbers. Right? But let's see what the great advantages of this. Nothing has a physical address and in fact... We could, in the middle of this computation, just add another million numbers. It wouldn't hiccup, no initialization is required. It would just eat these up in the usual way. Okay, so this is a true parallel computer. Right, so now we can do a little bit of evolution and see how we can make this more effective. And I think this is quite important. So E. coli invents another object, which is uh, called an excretase. So this is an adase, and this is an excretase. And what the excretase does is it binds a number, binds one of these numbers, and if it's in a zero, it excretes it out of the system through this pore. Okay, now, uh, that will mean that we're always trapping the zero, so the efficiency of the computation grows. Of course, it will get slower as the concentration falls. But these are then satisfactory solutions, and what I want you to notice is the following, that this excretase has, does not have to know anything about this, And this doesn't have to know anything about that. In other words, we do not have to pass messages to these things other than what already exists. Because this thing is only concerned with zeros and getting rid of them. That's its machinery. And this thing is only concerned with performing this bimolecular uh, reaction of adding. Now, you'll notice that this is very different from the way we programmers try to write parallel fun- programs because most of the time is taken in communicating between the various elements. But this thing has no communication at all. And therefore, it's extremely cheap. Okay, now of course, someone once said to me, well, why wouldn't E. coli build a pore into this protein. So every time it wrote a zero here, excrete it excreted. Uh, that requires some rather fancy machinery because you couldn't do it easily, but of course maybe that, that could happen as well. But what I show you here is to have two independent functions which require no communication between them. Right, so how would I program such an adase? Excretase system. I would have a way of specifying this function, and I would have something called the G system, right? And the G system would would ha- specify that an addase. So let's ask what it is. So the addase component of the G system would specify there is something which does this addition. That is the chemical reaction. There will be so many of these in the space at the time. And That's all I need. I just have to specify the numbers, the reactions, and of course amongst these numbers there is the affinity here because that will determine the rate of the reaction. Similarly with the excretase, I again have to have a module that just defines that defines its function, gives it a list of properties, okay? and therefore when I embed this in this environment, all I have to do is say go, you know, get on with the job. When it's done its job, it'll get slower and slower, then when new numbers come in, the same thing can just go on. Right? So if you look at this, this G system, is, of course, what the genes do. They will specify what this is, okay? And therefore, once having done that, this will run without any further control information. Now, I can do lots of fancy things with this because I can add more functions to it. So, notice the difference Between having physical dresses, orders of reaction, you do this the way we, human beings, write programs and the way E. coli writes programs. But E. coli, I reiterate, that none of these functions require the overhead, the enormous overhead of communication. They simply share this communal pool. Okay. Okay. So, it's very easy, and it is a fact, that if you take these biochemical processes, and so, we would have these here, so, let us just say, this is a set of, doesn't matter what these functions are, this is a transformase, it takes little a and b, and it combines them to give you c. And this one, which needn't be anywhere near, will pick up C and transform it into D. And this one then will pick up D plus E and turn it into uh, X. Okay. And those functions are written in the G component of this computer And simply specify essential features of these, the the affinity constant, the rate of the reaction, and the number of these elements. That's all we have to write. Okay. Now, it so happens that the way E. coli deals with this is that the termination of this is, in fact, feeds back on the first enzyme of the pathway, and inhibits it. So it's a negative feedback. So when this falls, this valve is automatically opened. When this rises, this valve is closed. That is very common. So it's local regulation. Furthermore, if this can't cope, and we still need to have more, there is usually this component regulates In fact, how much of the protein you synthesize. In other words, the parameter N, the number of molecules of each thing, is in fact regulatable by this end product. So we have local regulation. And you now ask, how is the global optimum performed? The global optimum is simply then globally limited by supply of components. That's a, we've now done a thing by employing certain things, all of which can be written as properties. Yeah, because this feedback inhibition site is another one of the specifications. It says, I've written here something, so this only worries about X. It doesn't have to worry about anything else, nor of any of the 500 other molecules that lie in the cell. Okay? I mean, I think computer systems are known which do this. They are not written in the imperative. They don't say do. They don't say add. Okay? They simply evaluate. They take the function that they are specified with. Okay? Now, what I would like to say, if I knew all those numbers, okay, that is, I have the remarkable thing that it is possible in the real world to write a number in terms of a DNA sequence. That, that, what it does, it's a trick, it's a DNA sequence, which specifies a protein, which can bind this component at a certain affinity. And let me just say that it follows that I could design this system then in the following way, that it could be run without any outside central computation, all the computation is distributed and that if I wanted really To understand how E. coli understands itself, then I would say, well, we simply represent the entire system as a matrix. Up here we have uh, the list of small molecules, A, B, C, D, etc., maybe 500 of them, and over here we have the enzymes. All right? And for each enzyme, we can write it as an equation. So this enzyme takes A plus B and makes C. Okay. So what it does is, if there are N enzyme molecules in a kind of t- unit time, we can say what this performs is minus N A minus N B Okay, gives us plus N C. Right? And then we just fill out this chart. So this enzyme, we would just write down minus n. A, minus n, minus n, plus n. Right? And then, so we would run this, we would let each enzyme, each enzyme, these rows of this matrix, would simply fill in these columns with minus N, plus N, whatever that N is, because the number of enzymes is specified. Then we would have a sweep down the columns and we would just add up all the A's and so on and see, does that come to whatever number that comes to? That's the amount of change, okay? And that would be the steady state. We'd have to make no global calculation so that E. coli is an organism that understands arithmetic. Now, we might ask ourselves, how can we prove this? How can we prove that that's the way it works? And there's only two issues here, and so what I want to do is to tell you about experiments that are Gedanken experiments, and they could be done now, I tried to do them 20 years ago. So, suppose I said, let me see how this system can deal with completely new circumstances. Right? So I want to give E. coli a problem it's never seen in its life before. Because, of course, if it's a problem it could have seen, then everybody would say, oh, it's got a memory of that, and it just evokes it at this time. Okay. So the problem I proposed giving E. coli is to grow it in heavy water. Because I think until heavy water, pure heavy water was made in, I forget which year, by Yuri, none of it existed in the universe. At least my friend, cosmologists friends assure me there couldn't be. So E. coli can have no memory of what it's like to grow in heavy water in deuterated water so we ask the question right we'll take this bug we'll put it in heavy water can it grow and the answer is yes after a bit of fumbling where lots of things change in the cell E. coli emerges growing in a new steady state ok and it's growing um with a generation time, three times slower than it does in the the protonic world. And it turns out that per gene, it has three times more RNA, that is the plant, and three times more protein per DNA. Okay, so something's inefficient. So let us ask ourselves, how does, e, what is it, how does e. coli cope with this? It has no experience can 't look it up anywhere. so it has the system has to be capable some form of generalization, if you like. right And the way it happens is as follows: It turns out that what makes life really tough in the world of deuterium chemistry is to break and make. Uh, covalent bonds with protons in other words if you are reducing a bond or you are uh, dehydrogenating a bond this costs a fortune and in fact you can sit down and look at the isotope effect all the other isotope effects like hydrogen bond strengths are trivial this is what costs money So, for example, making succinic succinic acid out of fumaric acid or vice versa, when the protons involved are deuterons, will proceed 11 times more slowly. These enzyme effects have been measured. In fact, in certain fatty acid biosynthesis enzymes, which do repeated dehydrogenations, and so on, can go as much as 40 to 60 times more slowly. Now, what E. coli has done is it's had a great adjustment to the protonic world, and what it's done is, since it wants to control all these enzyme pathways directly, as you can see, with one signal it takes the pathway, it very often does the same for the actual control of the enzyme production. So you will find that these three proteins will quite often be found succeeding each other, produced on one messenger RNA, and the one messenger RNA is controlled by something that turns it on and off and is sensitive to X, or some derivative of X in some cases. Right, so the, va- the representatives, the values, the amounts of protein made for each of these is basically regulated by the chemistry. Okay. So if some chemistry is tough, we'll have more of one than the other. And that is just a regulation by how fast you start the protein. It isn't a contingent regulation. It's just the way it works. Okay, so now let's take a pathway in which we have several steps like this. But this one here in the middle is one of those really tough guys. Okay, and we stuck it into the prot- from protons to deuterons. And now we find this enzyme is slowed 11-fold, right? So this drops, this valve is open, more is pushed through, but alas, it doesn't help. Because to keep it up, we're going to need 11 times the amount of that enzyme. So we open up the other valve which is this one automatically Okay, until we've made 11 times more this enzyme. But we have made 11 times more this one and this one at the same time because those ratios are different in the Deuteronic universe. Okay, so, and of course, every time we make more enzyme, we also got to make more plant to make all that extra protein. And that's very expensive. So what you find is that in order to grow at all into a new steady state, this system has three times the amount of enzyme that is actually required. It is able to cross the bridge because there's no guarantee it would make it. Right, so, I actually did these experiments because it occurred to me I could make the safest bacterium in the universe for doing genetic engineering. If I could get a bacterium that could only grow in deuterium in heavy water, then I could do all my genetic engineering with this and this bacterium wouldn't be able to live in the protonic Protonic universe. And so I started on a scheme uh, which would grow this to see if it really adapted to deuterium and then if it did adapt, would it sort of find problems living in ordinary water? Uh, So I grew it for a certain number of generations and in fact I put it back into water and of course it grew. I mean, there was no predicting and you could argue I didn't go on long enough. You know, a thousand generations at five a day isn't, isn't really interesting. You know, it should have been done for ten years with a little bit of mutation. Because you can now see how the system can self-optimize itself. Because what I've got to do is cut the tax of useless protein that I'm making is very expensive. And if you were to ask how you cut the tax, I would have to dissociate this regulation from these genes, which are okay, from this one. This is the one I need this extra response. And if I could dissociate that regulation and just keep Something that doesn't respond to an increase or responds in a different way, then I will save. And you can now see that such a system could evolve and could start anywhere in this map because everything helps. In fact, you could predict that if you started to look at this, the path would be different. The evolutionary path they could land up in many, many different states by many, many paths because you'd have an increment which is totally linear because no sooner do you make less protein. All right, and you can prove this quite easily by showing the following, which I've done, which is I say, right, I will give you one of these components for free You don't have to make it out of deuterium, right? How does this change the rate of growth? So, for example, I can take one of these pathways and just feed it the end product. It actually has been done, and it doesn't matter whether it's deuterated or hydrogenated. It's the same thing. So what I do is all of this becomes unnecessary, All of it will be switched off because the end product is now saturated. The gene thinks it's making enough. It hasn't got to make anything. And so I can have everything else deuterium except that. And I can ask, what is the value of improving that component, that sector of this economy, okay, in terms of the growth rate? You can do these measurements. And uh, one can therefore also use this method in principle to discover where things have been improved, if they are improved. So if by chance, uh, let's just say this is pyrimidine biosynthesis, where there is in fact one of these uh, dehydrogenation steps, And if I got in my improved bacteria no response to added pyrimidine, I could then say, I have improved that. So the fact that one can make these measurements, the fact that it crosses this, shows that such experiments are possible and that this is something E. coli can adapt to and in fact is generalizing for the deuterium world, something that it's not experienced before, but its structure can cope with. Right? Now, finally, there are some papers which actually show that I can take a new, a modification of an amino acid, in fact, right and I can give this to E. coli. So this means I change all the leucines everywhere it's this new component, sometimes it'll have no effect, sometimes they have a major effect, right? The system will take care of this because it will adjust each protein, so this is like the deuterium effect, except it's on the protein itself, and what it'll do, it will adjust the ones that are bad for certain proteins, then we'll just make more, of the bad proteins to try and adapt to it. And uh, there, are, there is a paper, again a very old one, which shows you can get E. coli to grow in 100% triflua It grows three times more slowly, it has three times more RNA, and three times more protein for the gene. So there are two cases, one where we make unpredictable changes in the the structure of the proteins and the other where we make unpredictable changes in the structure of the substrates and we can show in both of these cases how the bacterium deals with it. So, this succeeds simply because everything is kept distributed. There is no central computer. There is a master program creating a global optimum. The global optimum is built bottom-up, and it's self-regulating. And as you can see, it is quite cheap, and what is optimized in evolution... Are the nature of these properties here. Okay, so if you want me to say, do I understand after this little talk, do I understand, I hope you will agree you also understand how E. coli copes with the seemingly intractable problem of controlling 4,000 independent reactions because there isn't a program to control it. It has been grown bottom-up. The communication things are minimized simply to these recognition sites. So if I were to write the logic of the system, I would write it in terms of recognition sites. I don't have to deal with a big interaction program, because for this Biosynthesis, it is more what these, my numbers, are doing and who recognizes these numbers and how they deal with it. Okay, now I think that that's a fair description of how we should go about analyzing this. And you ask, is this a good way to simulate E. coli? I mean, what has happened to partial differential equations here? Uh, I will start from the basis that once a long time ago, Jack Cowan showed me a big integral differential equation and he said, that's the way your brain works. My answer was, Jack, it may be the way your brain works, (laughs) but I know for certain mine doesn't work this way. And I think coli, just adds integers and subtracts integers. This is a completely, it's completely—it's done in a linear system. Of course, there are very complicated things built into this in the terms of protein structure. So, when people say we have this genomic data now, how are we going to use it to understand function? You will see from this simple thing, I will ask myself the following question. I'll ask the question the other way, right? I would have to say, what is it do I have to know about the system that I could set up a simulation? Let's say my simulation is that sort of balance sheet in which I write down these equations, these numbers, I add them up. And I've got going, and if there's a fluctuation, I can watch how those numbers change. It'll all be automatically responded to. And so I can say, well, I need the specification of what these things do. Right? So I need to know that for each of these 4,000 gene products, this is what they do. This one adds A to B to make C it does it at the following rate. It also, there is so many of these molecules in the cell. That's all I have to know. So the question is, could you get those numbers from a DNA sequence? That's the issue. Can you get those numbers from a DNA sequence? Can you read a sequence and compute the KM from it? the infinity constant. I mean, I'm not sure whether that calculation is at all possible in general terms, whether it forms a soluble problem, but I can tell you that today you can't do it. No one can do it. Okay, because there's a lot, We don't. we'd have to fold up the protein first, we'd have to dock things in it, we'd have to understand what's in the site, and so, for this purpose, the genome is is not essential. We don't have to know the genome. So we then ask ourselves, well, how can we get that information? Because clearly we're not going to get it. It's, it's hopeless to do any kind of analysis. If you cannot compute these numbers on each of these blocks, you can forget it. Because no amount of faffing around with with DNA sequences is going to get you. So the best thing then is to measure the numbers directly. I mean, we're still allowed to do measurement. So we would measure all these numbers. If we can't calculate them from the sequence, we would have to measure them. And so you now discover that in fact and it's logically correct, you see, because Just ask yourself, I am getting those numbers from the sequence, okay? But I have to use a bit of analog computing. So, for example, if I had a bacterium that was completely extinct and I just had its genome, I could read the genome, I could synthesize all the proteins chemically in a machine, that's a kind of analog computer you can imagine, I make a machine, machine reads the sequence, it puts the amino acids in and I make an automatic synthesis Okay, and then I take the product of that and measure it, in other words the protein is then the polypeptide sequence is then an analog computer which calculates these numbers from the gene sequence yes, so it's logically correct but I have to use the sand lock. so of course I've got them already calculated so to speak pre-calculated in this book and so I would, I would then proceed uh, to make these measurements and of course once you say that then somehow the problem becomes a bit trivial and in fact If I knew the changes, I could sit down and calculate. If I knew that a deuterated substrate is 11 times more slowly, I can calculate for you now, knowing all the flows through the system, how much those enzymes would increase when I grew it with a deuterated substrate. Okay? And therefore, that is the test of the machine. So if you like, you see it's again the same problem as I think I mentioned it's the income tax problem. To evade uh, the problem of, of knowing how to regulate this huge complex plant, Ecola has avoided it. Okay? What it's done is it's delegated the control it's used the hardware in a very effective way. It's used molecular collisions, so it hasn't got to have physical addresses. It hasn't got to have the Detroit plan of an assembly line. It can have everything bumbling around in solution. But only because of this act of sight, which, of course, what nature has worked hard to produce, then we can minimize this effect. So the lessons are here seem to me to be obvious that you do not start with genomes and say what is it? How can I get the information out of the genomes? You start with the information, the data you need in order to understand the function and you simply ask what is the best way of computing this? from a genome, and today I will tell you it is much better to go in there and measure it directly. To this day, it is impossible to discover for any one of these proteins how many molecules there are per cell, because nobody measures it, and clearly on any simulation, as you will see, that's a number you have to know. You cannot deduce that number from the sequence itself. So, the sequence is an inventory, but the properties we need are not implicit in the sequence. So, therefore, I deduce that that's a futile occupation that we're going to find some magic program that is going to deduce it from the sequence itself. If you like, the sequence is the existence statement. that just says, there exists the following elements – And now, in order to manipulate their properties, because we cannot calculate them at the moment from basic sequence itself, we have to make measurements. So, I think this raises another point, uh, which I believe is very important to consider in the so-called post-genomic era, where we're going to do it all in this way, is uh, is the question of the organization of the system okay now it is as you will see you have to go to people who are specialists and who deal with this thing in the man-made world. You see, what we are now comparing is the man-made world of complexity like a petroleum refinery with an E. coli. So petroleum refinery has had a whole lot of engineers uh, design all the pipes and the lengths and the temperatures and so on, and then they run the plant with a control program. So it's designed, it obeys different constraints with an evolved system, okay? which has to do it with nobody knowing what the hole looks like. Okay? There's nobody there that's in charge of the globality of everything. There are no supervisors in this game. And it gets that way because, of course, it is a, a system which evolves so that greed on any part of these systems will be punished by death. We won't see those, those potential solutions where one of these subsystems will eat everything because it isn't going to last. So the thing has to cut the cake, if you like, so that everything is balanced. Well, I think with bacteria, uh, we only have a few states to consider of the whole system. Because it's essentially things grow. Uh, the bacterium is everything's homogeneous. It's not madly compartmentalized. It is compartmentalized, but not excessively so. But when we come to more complex organisms... We will have problems that you will see tomorrow in which we have different cells all cohabiting the same organism, as well as different systems inside those cells, different interactions between those cells. And I think, as you will see tomorrow, we have to get a good idea of what can you signal It's true, we're now going to be talking about signaling information, but what are the characteristics, the fundamental characteristics of these signaling processes? And we've done a lot in the bacterial case, and it's worth study. It's worth study to see how there are gadgets that can convert a hyperbolic Uh, a binding constants into delta functions by the use of molecular cooperativity so that you can get a response, a sharp response, over a much narrower range of concentrations. It's called allostery sometimes, but in fact it is just a gadget that says I can make the response instead of continuous over a range of concentration sharply defined. And I can move that response to different levels. And technically, you can ask yourself, well, how many levels can you sense? I mean, what is your, what is the range of this? And what I think is necessary to do is to just look at the gadgeteering that living systems use to engineer signals. And I think that becomes very important. Not so much here where this gadgeteering is used. In fact, to make these responses are very sharp. They are thresholded, simply because these proteins are multiple subunits. They have interactions uh, that they can have cooperative responses, so that when they start to go, they all go quickly rather than wait for the sequential addition of these things. And that's another lesson we learn from this simple system. Well, uh, if you think I've just made the problem vanish, and there's nothing more of interest to discuss about this, except to make the measurements, Uh, then I think that that's probably, I've served my purposes, because I don't think there is a problem here. I think it's all solved by integer arithmetic. And the only problem that would be wonderful to solve is if I could read off such things as rates of chemical reactions, such as binding constants, if I could read them off the DNA sequence. Because only then could I compute behavior and function from the genome sequence itself. But I believe that computation may even prove to be insoluble, and that we'd better use the analog computer which nature has devised and make the measurements of the profit. Thank you very much. Too much. I just wonder isn't this oversimplification I mean you can grow E. coli with different carbon sources, for example get very different rate of growth you yeah. never see this in the genome even if you could calculate KD from sequence Sorry, I didn't get the question. Could you repeat it? You put in different carbon sources. What I'm saying, this is oversimplification, both because expression will change according to what you put in your media, and because if you put, for example, different carbon source, we get different growth rate. Okay? Yeah. And we'll never see this kind of effect on the DNA sequence. Well, you can't, you can, you could in principle. <laughs> get it from the DNA sequence, but it doesn't affect it. Let me give you an example again from the deuterium case. If you grow this bacterium in acetic acid as a carbon source, in deuterated water and acetic acid, the way acetic acid is assimilated is there's a chemical reaction to join two of these to make succinic acid. All right? And you can say, what is, and that's a tough reaction, has a very high isotope uh, effect. Okay, so bacteria will grow in, deuter- in deuterium plus acetic acid. They will grow, and that's deuterated acetic acid as well. They will grow with a growth rate of i think it's 14 hours doubling time it is exceedingly slow so all we say okay we'll give you succinic acid directly okay then the growth rate goes up to 8 hours okay? so the value of that to cross that step it's just the same as the quenching there and i could in principle take each step and say this is the difficulty in deuterium, and I can measure it because of the nature of the system, I can just give it free samples of anything and cut off a pathway. And uh, I think that that would be the way to investigate that system in detail and just give values to each of these sectors. But I can tell you that the sector for that enzyme is worth something like six hours of doubling time. It is so difficult to cross. Could you comment on the the notion of uh, the uh, organism that you chose to speak about, a very simple one where you're, converting chemical uh, species to products, and you're presumably consuming energy uh, while this is going on. Otherwise, there'd have to be another input of, uh, of uh, energy. Um, what you're creating something here, you're creating these machines uh, or an organism in this case. Uh, so does biology have a uh, sort of a, a unit of uh, energy, if you will, that uh, must be expended to create a unit of biocomplexity, Uh uh, organization if you want to call it that are there different uh, quanta for this conversion for different organisms uh, or is it a universal yeah. for all organisms? I think you're asking a very profound question which is you're asking for what is the cost in terms of imposing or you know of developing one kind of organization and I think organization is the right is the right word and I'm not so sure, you know, it's just energy alone. Because I think we have to take, to say, is it reachable from the present state? By, by how many mutations is it reachable? Right? Because that is a cost itself that you have to get up to a population size that you can find that event. So I think that that calculation is something we will have to do because we need to say, we need to describe the efficiency of evolution, right? Whether these paths have been selected because they were the only places reachable from an existing situation. I think it's capable of being investigated. Now, in terms of pure energy, uh The bacteria have the following thing. They take energy out of packets. That is, there are certain bonds which, when they are broken, uh, provide a lot of energy. But you can't use everything. You can only use from that exchange whatever you can need. So this is high-energy phosphate. So for some reactions, might take half of it. Okay, and others might only take 30%, but you can't save the other 60%. So it's all in terms of, of just taking a package and using it. Of course, you've got to have more than you need uh, for this thing, but not actually saving on it, because it's the convenience of how, so to speak, you can move this energy around. Okay, the rest, of course, is heat comes off as heat. So that's not a useful calculation for us because different chemical bombs require different pathways. Sometimes there are different pathways to make the same thing in different bacteria and we could investigate that. What I think is interesting is, is something uh, which when I did it surprised me. Uh, In a teaching in 1965, uh, a course, I decided the best way to get these people to understand bacteria was to set up to see if we could do the economy of E. coli. So the students were divided into teams, and everybody was sent away to look at one of these subsystems and say, how much does it cost to make tryptophan? and another team found out how much it cost to make histidine right now we knew how much you could get out of glucose in terms of atp molecules that's a currency you can think of these as dollar bills if you like and so we could work out how much atp was consumed in making everything we knew and how much atp could be obtained from the burning of the glucose. And so what you look is this. How much glucose do you have to burn to double E. coli? That is, to make another E. coli. And we took all of these things, and to my amazement and the amazement of the students, we could only account for something like 10% of the ATP. We now know where there is a lot of energy is expended because in the 60s we didn't know that there is a lot of editing and error correction goes on. There's DNA repair. There is in fact things pumped across membranes of which we were only vaguely aware there. So it would be interesting to see how better can we do now. I mean, how much does error correction really cost? And we can measure these things. So I think that's interesting. But 30 years ago, we had a huge deficit. We couldn't work out. You know, we thought we had all of molecular and macromolecular synthesis done. But in fact, uh, if you look for many things, there is a lot of energy is expended in Editing and correcting. In other words, where accuracy is important, it is quite often done twice. It burns the energy twice as required for making a bond. So, but all those calculations could now be done now that our knowledge is, is, uh, is getting complete. I'm a little bit confused about the nature exactly of um, the the slowdown due to raising the animals in, in deuterated water. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, if this is a, a sort of fundamental constraint, something like diffusion, or if there's something else going on. Because the the animal should evolve, I, I think, in different ways if it's sort of a diffusion effect or some other effect. No, you can prove it's actually due to the chemistry. Because you can actually show it's, that's got to do with the well-known effect that breaking carbon deuterium bonds costs is much more difficult than breaking or making carbon hydrogen bonds. And that is just a fact. It's got nothing to do with the fact that PD is slightly different from pH, that the deuterium bond is slightly, is slightly different stronger than the hydrogen bond, slightly, any of those things. It is simply to do with this chemical synthesis and actually radical reactions involving hydrogen are extremely slowed in deuterium. So that's the, that's the whole thing. And you can sit down and measure these. And of course, were I to use tritium, I'd get an even more powerful isotope effect, but it's quite hard to get pure tritiated water. I mean, it's not a pleasant thing to work with, basically. (coughs) So, But you can measure the tritium coefficient chemically, and you can show that that's even a stronger effect. So there's no doubt about it. This is, due to the isotope effect, And it grows more slowly because it's got to do more per gene in order to make the doubling. It's got to have much more plant because the basic reactions are inefficient. It's got nothing to do with diffusion. It's got nothing to do with hydrogen bonds. It's got nothing to do with the fact that, you know, proteins may be more easily or less easily denaturable. All those are trivial effects in the face of this just plain, just plain chemistry. Sidney, since uh, bacterial genomes are small, we have the sequence of a number of them. Yeah. I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about comparative genomics for bacteria. Yeah, well, the first thing to, I've looked at this and, Bacterial genomes, there seems to be, each life of a bacterium takes about two gigabases. See, because many bacteria have alternative lives. They have two lives. I mean, E. coli has two places where it lives. One in the world outside and one in your intestines. And my guess is that there's about 2 gigabases, 2,000 genes that you need for a nice free life outside where you have to make all the components. And then the other 2KB is how you live inside this one, what you turn off because you get it for free, right? What you need to stick to the inside of the intestine or in some cases crawl into animal cells. So I think that that is the, the interesting thing, is, is this. And, of course, um, you will get, uh, if you look at, let's say, Thermos aquaticus or some of the archaeobacteria, which are free living, have no other life, then you'll find that that's about 2,000 genes. And it's all the standard ones. So people have done uh, the so-called comparative genomics of bacteria. A lot of bacteria have been done. There's a lot of argument about how many classes there are, as to whether archaeobacteria should be considered a separate phylum and so on i think you also see very interesting gadgets there genetic gadgets which have happened in which how bacteria can deal with effectively varying themselves because how bacteria escape from the immune system is is a little story all of its own for those that live inside ourselves and animals um I think there is an aspect of bacteria that hasn't been put to use yet. It's just beginning to. And that is, you have DNAs, it's been known for years, you have DNAs of markedly different base composition. For example, streptomycetes uh, is 75% GC, and then something like subtilis or staphylococcus is right down there, almost at at 25% GC. So you can vary the amount of GC in a genome. Now, it turns out to be very interesting, because, of course, the third positions in the code will respond to that driving. So if you go to streptomyces, most of the third positions are... G's or C's. The other thing that responds, but at a slower level, as Siwaka showed now many years ago, are the other positions. Okay? So wherever you can change something without a major effect on the protein, then it will be driven up by this force. And similarly, the other way around. Now, what is interesting is that glycine and proline, which are high GC codons, have very important structural roles in the protein. So if you take a protein that you look at that same enzyme in a high AT organism, it will have given up all the glycines and prolines that it can where they are just okay, they don't need them, and only preserve the essential ones because of the mutation pressure. And so therefore I think that by looking at the same enzyme essentially made by two different gene compositions, I think we can say very interesting things about what's an essential amino acid. Because of that, the driving is in one direction and therefore it isn't just a trance thing. Everybody will surrender. So for example, if you look at streptomycete proteins, the amino acids that they put in when they don't have anything better to do, is alanine, which is high GC. And on the other hand, if you look at high and you find lots of arginine, which is again high GC. But if you look at uh, an organism like yeast, it's what I call an NK organism. What you find is lots and lots of lysines. Okay. So, And I think this is interesting. And there's another very interesting thing, which is how the surface of amino acids respond. Because you sometimes don't worry so much as on the surface. So it turns out, very interestingly, that if you look at an ampicillinase from a higher GC organism, you'll find that it's negatively charged because most of the things on the surface are things like GAA, GAG, in fact, it has been pushed up. Whereas if you look at it in a staphylococcus, it's a positively charged because those very same amino acids have turned into... Into things like, uh, uh, lysine, the glutamics have changed to lysine, wherever you can have them on the outside. So the isoelectric point of these of these proteins can differ excessively, but it's just simply what can be driven will be driven. And I think we could learn a lot about protein structure from comparative, uh, from comparing genomes. The other thing I think is very interesting is uh, what they call horizontal transfer, which I don't believe in. I don't believe it simply because it's like the the anthropomorphic, whatever it is, the universe. You see, why should people, physicists have asked, uh, why, you know, how many universes will there be that have the structure. In other words, all the laws of physics have been set up to generate a system that can describe the laws of physics, essentially. It happens to be us, basically. So we have to take that into account that if, that biological objects, which so far are the only things that can describe the laws of physics, uh, they would have to be compatible with the laws of physics. And so, the fact that carbon is tetrahedral is explained by us writing textbooks of quantum mechanics, roughly speaking. Well, there is, a, there is a similar thing with the bacterium, which is, you know, why should I be so fortunate to have seen horizontal transfer in action today? When did it happen? I mean... You know, was it last year, was it towards the end of the 13th century, or was it 30,000 years ago? We have no idea why should we be so fortunate to catch this frame. There is horizontal transfer, but as I like to say, as in the case of human beings, where the horizontal transfer is called sex, it's also sex in bacteria, Okay, so in order to have transfer, you must have mechanisms of exchange. So everything is insulated from everything else. It's just a system. Now, of course, what we love to do is to say that long, long ago, you know, inns and inns ago, and there was quite a lot of horizontal transfer. In fact, it was all just one giant orgy until we sorted it out. Maybe there weren't even organisms. Maybe there were just solutions of molecules absorbed to surfaces. So that kind of origination of this isn't the kind of thing they're talking about now, or they'd like to say they don't distinguish between that of rescuing genes from other organisms. We know there is a lot of of this, and of course it is on the assumption that it hasn't come to the new equilibrium that is set by the mutation. I can show you pieces of genes that that must have come from the outside because they really haven't come to equilibrium. In fact, we know that they have come because they're on separate elements and been produced. So what could this mean if it's not horizontal transfer? It's what I call vertical lag. In other words, not all the genes have reached the mutational equilibrium some parts of the genome are growing more are evolving more slowly towards the new equilibrium than other parts and we don't know how long we might have to wait for that to take place there's also something that i think they have misled themselves which can be shown in a very simple diagram see everybody says Let's take, we look for things that are outside the statistical, the statistical, uh, distribution of base composition, because that suggests they come from another organism. So what I have done is the following. I've taken, for a whole lot of genomes, I've taken, there's a class of codons, which I call two-star codons, which only have two states in the third position. So these are neutral changes. So some have a C or a T, and some have an A or a G. Okay? So we take all the genes in a genome, and we work out the fraction of T over T plus C for those codons. We ignore everything else and we work out the fraction of A over A plus G for the others, like arginine. Those are the same mutation event. It's it's a transition. The bases are the same except they're on opposite strands of the DNA. Right? And what we do is we take for each gene and uh, We make a plot, and so this is for a given gene what is this parameter? So we'll call it the y parameter. We plot the y against the r. Okay, and what we find is we can describe the results by a contour diagram. Okay, so. Let's just say that what we find is that uh, we have a set of things like this. Okay, so over here, there are genes over here with very high R values and very low Y values, correct? And over here, there are genes with very high Y values and very low our values. In fact, we have all of the possibilities. Now you'll notice that I drew this symmetrically. Okay, so let's look at these contour lines and ask what it means. Uh, we could, just following the Markov processes in here, say, suppose the average is fifty okay? percent. The amount of T over T plus C is fifty percent. And just to make things easy, let's suppose we had in a gene uh, 40 of these things. So we have 20 RTs and 20 Cs. Okay, now we have, since this is, the equilibrium is 50%, the direction is the same in both directions. I just chose that. And so at this point, we have an equal probability that this will change to that, so this will become 19, this will become 21, okay, at that change, or this could become 21, and this could become 19 at the next stage, okay, now the next stage, this people will realize is, is a Markov process, and at the next stage, the probability will be that this could go back to that, Or it's not too different for this to go one step further and go to 18, right? There's not too much a difference in probability. And if in fact, if you run through the numbers, you will have occupancy of very rare, very rare things. So what you have to imagine is the genes are moving along these coordinates. Okay going backwards and forwards, occupying these. So that's a diagram. Notice, something very interesting here is, if the gene is at equilibrium, this should be have vertical axes, right? It doesn't mean it has to be a circle, that just says this process has the same properties as this process, which indeed it does have. But if I plotted something else, I might get an ellipse. That's just a scaling function. Now, when you take some of these bugs, you find this, but in fact, you find a tail. Okay, there's a tail, and what, of course, you find is the following, and there is a slope here. And that slope proves there's history. Okay, that these genes are moving up to this, and you can tell this is the point because these contour lines are very close together, which you would expect if you were at equilibrium. So that is a method which I've devised to get a glimpse of the whole genome in one diagram. This is what yeast looks like. There are a lot of genes here. Right Now, what you can do is take a lot of bacteria at equilibrium, and you can just ask who occupies... So how close is the history of these two bacteria? Okay, so you see history here when you're at equilibrium, okay, involves going up and down. So gene might be here, one gene might be here towards at the birth of Christ and then somewhere around the Crusades it may have moved up here and so on. And so this is very good because you ask in two organisms at equilibrium that you think are related, if they share a common history, then the population of these contour lines should resemble each other, right? They should occupy, many cases, completely random, showing that although they have some commonality, a lot of commonality of amino acids, they've been had separate histories in terms of this diagram for many, many, for a long time. So, I think that I dismiss the only case I found horizont- real evidence for horizontal transfer was an analysis of Drosophila DNA, which has a huge tail., okay, a lock like this, all right, a lot of genes lagging behind, and then it has another little island here another little island of genes way off here turns out when I looked at all of those they were transposons Okay, they were way away and that is evidence that those islands are under their own regime Okay, and that is horizontal transfer which is what we believe we think these things transposons have been transmitted to organisms Okay, so that's what I think of comparative genomics. And I don't believe any of the stuff written. So I think people believe computers too, too easily. Okay, and they say, well, we'll do statistics. But this is the real statistics to do. People will recognize this as sort of a little bit of statistical mechanics, actually, uh, which... Uh, I had to put in the form of diagrams so that I understand it. I'm basically a geometer, not an algebraist. Thank you.